Hello and welcome to Common Room Philosophy. This episode is an interview in two parts with David Bather Woods, a senior teaching fellow at Warwick who has recently taught courses on Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and the history of philosophy. In this first part, we will discuss David's path into philosophy before moving on to discuss the value of studying the history of philosophy and how we can address the problem of its lack of diversity. Welcome, David. Hi, Toby. Thanks very much. No problem. Good to have you on. Um, so for, for the first section of the podcast, we're just going to ask a couple questions about you. So how did you first become interested in philosophy and what was your path into philosophy from there? Uh, I think I first became interested in philosophy because I realised I naturally had a philosophical disposition. Just certain questions started to occur to me while I was, before I went to university, while I was doing my A-levels, I was obsessed with questions about freedom and determinism, you know, having that thought where if the initial conditions of the start of the universe were the same, um, you know, with a different universe, then would that mean that they would turn out to have, you know, identical outcomes? If so, does that mean that we have any freedom of choice? So I was obsessed with that question. I was obsessed with questions about the difference between appearance and reality. And um, I was getting into philosophy at in a time where you could look into these questions um, by putting them into Google. Um, and a lot of these names kept coming up. Um, so I ended up tracking down books by so I read Descartes' Meditations and Bertrand Russell's The Problems of Philosophy, classics like that, Plato's Republic, works by Hume as well. And this is all before going to university. So it was more just that I realised that those were the kind of questions I was interested in. Um, and there was this whole branch of knowledge that I hadn't heard about before that was dedicated to looking at those questions. Do you think that uh, the questions that you first came onto, so say like free will determinism, appearance versus reality, are those still the questions that interest you now? Um, or are you primarily focused around other issues now? No, they don't interest me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. I, 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 it really troubled me, I think, because at first they troubled me because they seemed quite fundamental, that, that they should have an impact on my life. Like, if I don't have free will or if, if things aren't as they seem, how can I live my life? <laughs> but I guess I gradually stopped worrying about that without having to find philosophical answers to them. I, I kind of learned to live without believing that I have free will or caring whether I do or not. Life eventually started to feel like it was going back to normal. But by then, I'd encountered some philosophers who'd raised questions I hadn't thought of before. So the philosopher who I now study, Schopenhauer, I actually encountered because I was interested in the question of free will, because Schopenhauer wrote on that. But gradually, through reading Schopenhauer, I got into other questions that preoccupy him, to do with suffering and evil and dark stuff that's kept my attention. So is that, uh, of those questions, kept your attention for a lot longer? Yeah, definitely, and still do. You know, I still definitely like thinking about, the kinds, again, the kinds of things that Schopenhauer thought about, um, stuff to do with um, what it means for our existence that it's so full of suffering um that uh how we can potentially escape it or if not how do we how do we carry on living so i got interested in schopenhauer's sort of philosophy of value and his and his ethics and and more recently his uh his politics so 
I'd also just like to ask, would you call yourself a philosopher? That depends on the context. Um, mm. So I think sometimes philosopher sounds like a honorific term that it's for other people to say whether you're a philosopher or not. And it's like calling yourself a poet, you know, or something. I think, you know, I can see where that question would be coming from. But in a, sometimes in a professional context, I, I might say that I'm a philosopher in order to distinguish myself from, you know, my colleagues in, in the psychology department or the physics department. But even then, I might just say, you know, if somebody asks me what I do for a job, I'll say I work at a university or I uh, teach at a university. But the one where I actually most comfortably say I would call myself philosopher is actually in a, in a teaching context. So often to distinguish between the kinds of things that might interest me or my students, um, I'll say, you know, we're philosophers. We're interested in these kinds of questions, not those kinds of questions. I'll call myself a philosopher in, in, in that context where, where I'm kind of distinguishing the kind of thinking I'm doing from the kind of thinking that uh, others do, which tends to be when you're thinking about something to its most fundamental level, I think that's what's distinctive about philosophy. And also something that only struck me recently, because I was reading a book that made a point about this, you know, we've got to remember that it's, it means love of wisdom. We're, we're one of the few disciplines that has the word love <laughs> in, its, in its title. Um, and I think that's I think that's still there in that there seems to be, because you could be a wise person without loving wisdom in the sense that you don't have an attitude towards your wisdom. You know, I think my, for instance, my grandparents were very wise, but I don't think they thought very much about the nature of wisdom or, or loved wisdom. <laughs> Whereas I think philosophers are interested in, in thinking about it. They guard it. They <laughs> wonder about it. They jealously <laughs> um, pursue it. And so I think it's, that particular thing of actually wondering about wisdom that's, that's distinctive of philosophers. So when I'm distinguishing between that and other ways of thinking about the world, that's what I call myself a philosopher. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, when you say that it is about that attitude towards wisdom, I was just making me think about the kind of the big questions which seem to underlie your interest in philosophy. Do you sort of expect answers to those questions? Uh, is that the kind of thing you're looking for? Because I feel like, like you know, as you're saying with uh, free will determinism, I approached that in the same way when I was younger, that I kind of needed an answer uh, in order to live. And then slowly the issue sort of just ended up dissolving itself. And yeah, I wonder, like, do you expect answers to these questions that you follow now and that you followed for far longer? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think I ever expect final answers. I'll say that. Um, I think that's a fool's errand. And I think the history of philosophy shows that we don't get final answers ever. They're only sort of provisionally accepted pending further arguments or, you know. But I do think the provisional answers can help. Um, so what I like about the area of philosophy that, I, that I'm interested in is that because it's deeply rooted in issues that affect the human condition as it were um it can help you to make make sense of your own experience as it happens or reflect on previous experiences plus i think in order to investigate these things you have to sharpen all your rational faculties and even if the outcome isn't a, a final answer that's set in stone 
the sharpening of those faculties is going to enable you to encounter the next problem you have to work on better, whether it's a philosophical problem or, or, or a life problem. And so I think that's, that's partly one of the things it means to, to love wisdom is to want to train one's rational faculties in a way that one can live in the light of them. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good answer. Yeah, so now just to move on to the second section, we're going to discuss the history of philosophy, which you've taught before at Warwick. So just to just to approach that issue, scientists don't learn the history of science and mathematicians don't learn the history of maths in the way that philosophers learn the history of philosophy. Uh, for us, historical philosophical figures kind of remain conversation partners rather than mere curiosities. What do you think the value is of teaching the history of philosophy in this way, if you do think that's valuable? So I'm really interested in this question as well. And I've had conversations with my colleagues about this, particularly actually to do with curriculum um, and program design, actually, because um, we do teach the history of philosophy um, and a lot in a lot of universities, history of philosophy modules will be core modules which suggests that we think it's really important to get to grips with the history of philosophy. So, so I agree that it's treated as very important and it's treated as important in a way that's different from the history of science or the history of maths, even though presumably people in those fields feel that their history is important too in different ways. I think there might be lots of different reasons why that is. One of them might be that in those fields that don't have the same connection to their history, they still have great figures in their history, but the learning and the research that those figures do, they do on sort of on everyone's behalf. So for instance, if a, if a physicist discovers something, we'll say, we know that, you know, so since Newton, we know that when an object exerts a force against another object, the second object will exert an equal and opposite force. We know that. Whereas I think figures in the history of philosophy, you can't really say that. You can't say, since Locke, we know that the human mind is a blank slate. I mean, that only works if you believe Locke's arguments. So we're, we're more interested in, we can learn from these figures, but they don't learn on our behalf. We learn by, by listening to their arguments. We're interested in, in views um, and arguments for views. And often, I mean, maybe it's just... The other possibility is there's just a psychological explanation that referring to historical figures is just an easy shorthand for um, encompassing a whole world view. So I can say a Cartesian view and that that scoops up and collects lots of views and um, and ideas and arguments. So sometimes a historical figure is just a it's just a kind of emblem of a whole world view. Um, and so the value of teaching the philosophy history of philosophy in this way, I think is that um, the history of philosophy is just full of these views. Um, and we can get to know the way these people, these great thinkers thought. And actually, the last thing I suppose to, to say on this is that there are some real big beasts in the history of philosophy uh, that, that I think, you know, a lot of contemporary philosophy pales in comparison as good as it is. So it's it's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever been to the Natural History Museum, but occasionally you encounter these, uh, you expect to encounter dinosaurs because you know they existed, but occasionally you'll encounter some kind of giant land mammal, some kind of megafauna, and you think, God, that thing really existed. <laughs> uh, and sometimes when you when you find the right philosopher, 
it's a bit like that, thinking that mind really existed. And if we didn't have, we didn't study the history of philosophy, we wouldn't get to really encounter those those big minds. Okay, so so there's a few different strands there, that there's this sort of aesthetic appreciation of these massive, impressive minds and systems that potentially, I've, I've heard it said that uh, like recent philosophers don't often think in systems yeah. in the same way, or they don't really have the maybe even the time or the funding to and then there's there's also being able to refer to something as Kantian or Humean to group families of views, uh, and 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 maybe to maybe that's part of history of philosophy is separating things into empiricism, rationalism, and then understanding things through those lenses. Um, but I do wonder. I've seen there are some papers uh, that have titles such as was Kantian, was Hume Humean. And, you know, as silly as they may sound, it does point to this divide between the way that we apply the term Kantian, Humean, uh, and the way that the original thinkers actually might have thought. In these courses, we focus on the work of Kant and the work of Hume. Should there be also emphasis on the intervening years between Kant and now, uh, and just understanding how these ideas have developed, because that seems to be like quite a major part of that thinking. So, I mean, I think that's a, partly a teaching decision to be made, uh, depending on what you want to show or get out of a group of students. But certainly, actually, in recent experience, I teach a module called Nietzsche in Context. And I did a, a, a bit of an exercise in mid-module feedback by getting students to just fill out a couple of post-it notes on what they think I could add for the last few weeks. And I was focusing very much on the stuff that was happening in Nietzsche's work and in Nietzsche's time. And there were a couple of suggestions that could we, could we hear a bit more about what happened next? Um, and so for instance, I ended up talking about Foucault a bit and uh, Bernard Williams and, and Philippa Foote. And so both in the kind of so-called continental analytical traditions uh, of philosophy, what, what impact Nietzsche's ideas, and they did have an impact, what in, impact they had. I think that can be helpful uh, but I also think there's something to be said for just getting immersed in a in a in a in a new way of thinking um, that you may not have in a way because it doesn't exist anymore. You may not have otherwise had an opportunity to think in that way. So just being able to immerse yourself in a particular historical philosopher or a particular historical period allows you to uh, access to a new, not just a new set of ideas, but a new way of like thinking about those ideas. So I find that quite interesting so i'm i'm not always that bothered about how things are uh, received or how things change and as for papers that are called things like was humor humian is cantacantium i think that's just a fun way to put do we really understand hume because this is how we normally talk about hume this is the standard uh, view of what it is to be a humian and then you compare it to what you perhaps think is the the real Humean view, and then you there's a fun you know disjunct between them. So I think that's just another way to put, um, uh, you know, a more rhetorical way to put: do did we really understand Hume, or did we really understand Kant or, or whoever? I don't think there is a uh, was Schopenhauer a Schopenhauerian <laughs> out there, <Right. laughs> but maybe that's one I can still try time. and do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, th I think it was just an interesting way of showing that when we're focusing really hard on the thinker 
And then we're also saying that that is telling us something about how that thinking might have affected the history of philosophy. We actually might be mistaken because if everyone in the history of philosophy is working on an incorrect interpretation of that thinker, then it's actually more valuable perhaps for us to learn about that interpretation or like in that context it might be. But it doesn't mean that it's not valuable to focus on what that thinker might actually have thought as well. Yeah, that's good. I mean, um, history of philosophy can definitely make happy mistakes, I think, and they can get a philosopher wrong in a really interesting way. And perhaps actually the, the right way to get the philosopher is less interesting. That's definitely po- a possibility. Um, so it, it's, it's possible that Hume wasn't a Humean, but whatever he, we thought he was was more interesting than what he really was. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the other interesting thing about the history of philosophy. And anyone who approaches it has to ask themselves, am I more interested in what this person really thought and, um, or at least what we can know about what they thought from what they wrote. Am I more interested in making something quite interesting out of what they thought um, that's perhaps new um, and and hasn't been encountered or, or, or has kind of been forgotten by uh, the rest of philosophy? Or perhaps somewhere different is this contemporary problem, you know, in metaethics or, or some technical area of philosophy does you know, a certain philosopher has something to contribute there. And that's a quite a common thing that people do in, uh, you know, writing on the history of philosophy as well. Mm, I, I think, yeah, that, that leads us really nicely onto the next question, um, which is more in reference to kind of academics and research. W- why is it that a lot of philosophers value intense focus on the life and work of specific historical philosophers? So I, th- I think we've, we've, we've sort of kind of got at that idea a little bit. But why is that project a valuable project, Um, Mm. especially, you know, with reference to philosophers that are fairly well known? So it's not that their ideas haven't been heard before. It's that maybe their ideas have been misinterpreted or or something like that. Speaking for myself, the reason why I value intense focus on the life and work of a specific historical philosopher is mainly psychological that that particular philosopher fascinates me and the way that they thought and the things that they thought about, I find just personally very appealing. So I would wager that a lot of people get into it, at least in the first instance, that just it just seems like a really attractive thing to think about. But then how a whole scholarship uh, ends up surrounding that, I think, is a different thing. And it may be right that there's something less valuable about just focusing on uh, you know intense scholarship on 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 one historical philosopher's life and work when we could really just have a more of a pick and mix approach and uh, you know have a broad understanding in the history of philosophy and be able to combine these different viewpoints and and some people who have a great command of the history of philosophy are able to do that really well um and and there's a lot of work in the history of philosophy that becomes really involved and technical and it becomes a bit of a family dispute between scholars about issues that may not interest anyone outside the field but but occasionally still um you know that work generates um really interesting viewpoints on live questions in uh, philosophy and again i think it just depends on who's doing this work what they want to to get out of it sometimes they do want to say this philosopher who you thought you knew you don't really understand 
uh, or often actually a lot of work in history of philosophy is really defensive. So they'll say people often object to um, whoever it is on these grounds. And I want to say that they're misreading him or her and, and it's uncharitable. Um, and I want to propose an alternative interpretation that you know works around these. So a lot of the work is kind of defending the reputation of a historical philosopher or restoring the reputation of a historical philosopher or even you know trying to create a reputation for that. Um, in my field, the, the, the literature isn't as developed as, say, studies around Kant or Nietzsche or, or Plato, where there's just endless amounts of, of books and detail. But um, so I'm lucky that you can kind of get a bit more of a handle on what's going on. But but yeah, the, around certain figures, a huge amount of quite scholastic literature <laughs> accumulates. But in amongst that, some philosophers, I mean, I've mentioned Bernard Williams is a good example of somebody who did really good work on Nietzsche in the history of philosophy, but did amazing work um, just independently as a philosopher in, in ethics and, and other fields too. Um, and I think those two things aren't unconnected. Yeah, and I, I think that definitely refers back to your description of philosophy earlier as being an attitude towards wisdom that is sort of naturally going to have this effect that people are, you know, very defensive of certain philosophers and like really just intensely interested in their ideas. And that can be, yeah, extremely valuable for a lot of reasons. And actually, just to add to that, I think it's actually quite good to get beyond being defensive um, of a philosopher. Like certain, I definitely used to get really defensive about Schopenhauer's views, who, who I work on, and tried to move things around so he was making better sense or avoiding more objections. But actually, more recently, I think it can be quite interesting to 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 focus on their flaws. That's what Schopenhauer did. He, he wrote this huge appendix on Kant where he, the first few pages he says, look, I don't need to tell you how great Kant is. We all know how great Kant is, but the, mo the best tribute, most fitting tribute I can think of is to point out all the things he got wrong. And he spends hundred or so pages pointing out things, mainly in Kant's theoretical philosophy. So the critique of pure reason, um, but also in his aesthetics and, and other places too. Um, so I think not holding back can be quite good too and addressing some troubling parts of their legacy. So for instance, Schopenhauer uh, was a horrendous misogynist and he wrote this essay called On Women. It was is really awfully sexist and horrible essay. And I think sometimes calling out philosophers on what they got wrong can be important work in the history of philosophy too. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And that's what our last question in this section is, is sort of around that area of reassessing the history of philosophy. That there's been a lot of uh, call recently from like decolonized groups to try and create a more inclusive history of philosophy, which includes um, some of the influences which maybe have been played down in the past in favor of dead white men. And um, I was just wondering what you think about what might have caused the, how uh, how homogenous the history of philosophy seems to be in that respect and also what we might do to change that and what perhaps what roadblocks might be in the way so i'm definitely not doing my bit <laughs> for for changing up the the canon by focusing on schopenhauer he's the epitome of the of the wealthy uh white male and i've already said that he his own views on on women were appalling but i do think that the we need to think seriously about who is represented in the history of philosophy. In lots of ways, 
because of the reasons that I've given already about the value of the history of philosophy. So if it's about unlocking new ways of thinking that have become extinct, um, like those animals in the Natural History Museum, sort of reanimating them, like that, we, we, there might be uh, lost voices in the history of philosophy that only historians of philosophy can really bring out um, and engage with as philosophers and so if we want to if we want to have access to more of those interests and thoughts, then we've got to go looking for them. So there's that. So so um, so me speaking as a, a white male <laughs> in an affluent uh, country, um, I could do better for uh, by engaging with uh, perspectives, uh, philosophical perspectives other than my own. Um, on the other hand, if I wasn't who I am, I think I'd find it incredibly uh, transformative if I was studying the history of philosophy, to be able to engage with uh, people who were coming from my own perspective or maybe had reflected on that perspective more than I have yet. And so I think that's the other thing too. If we want to have a future for philosophy that is better than, than the current canon, then we have to rethink what the canon looks like. How we go about changing it, I guess, is about how you know we change how we write about it and we change how we teach about it. So just my Nietzsche in context course. I can't change Nietzsche into anything other than a, than, a, than a dead white man. But what I can do, at least um, this year, for instance, one thing that's good about teaching Nietzsche is that there's a, there's a huge amount of great female philosophers who've worked on, on Nietzsche. Um, so there's Maud Marie Clark and Beatrice Hampyle and Jessica Berry. And then one of Nietzsche's first systematic interpreters was uh, Lou Salome, who was a great intellectual figure in her own right and, and moved in a lot of intellectual circles and 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 should probably um, herself be someone who's more studied in the history of philosophy and then actually some people have been doing this for the, for the legacy of Schopenhauer so again can't change who Schopenhauer was but um, Frederick Beiser in, in a couple of books he's written recently he's mentioned how there are there are, there are women philosophers who um, who have had a role in the pessimism controversy that came after Schopenhauer. So there's Olga Plumacher who who wrote a piece in one of the very first editions of Mind about pessimism and just brought that to greater to the you know to the attention of the at least the English speaking uh, philosophical world. Um, so yeah, um, I, again, I don't know whether they're going to be made into canonical figures. Um, but certainly it's in, so I've incorporated those into my teaching, even when talking about Nietzsche. Yeah, that's great. So it's I mean, it, there's kind of two strands in which it seems valuable then is in there's the there's the strand of its in, enriching philosophy itself as in it introduces new perspectives which could help with contemporary issues or understanding of past issues, but also that it's representation for the students of philosophy as well. Yeah. And I guess um, one part of your question as well was, you know, why did this happen that the that, that, uh, history of philosophy is the way it is? I mean, I think there's going to be historical, loads of historical and social reasons why that is, both in the history of philosophy uh, and also, you know, the history of, of the world. And, and I, I w- those are empirical questions. So as a philosopher, and I'm happy to call myself a philosopher in this context, because it means I don't have to answer certain questions. Yeah. I, I don't know the answer to those things exactly. And maybe, maybe I should know better. I probably should. But certainly if we want to change the environment and so that those um, historical and social reasons don't continue to go on into the future, we've got to reevaluate our past. That's the thing. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Common Room Philosophy. Part two of this interview on Arthur Schopenhauer and how his views on boredom, loneliness and solitude might inform the present moment will be uploaded soon after this episode. If you are a Warwick student who is interested in learning more about decolonising the curriculum, check out the Warwick Decolonise project on Facebook. If there are any specific voices which you think philosophy is lacking, be sure to request that the Warwick Library buy their books. Thank you for listening.